This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Bill Pollack. Nice to be with you again. Husband and wife had a crazy idea one night. Let's turn a barn into a brewery. Twelve years later, they're still going strong. We'll talk to Piney River Brewing. One state representative says fans and parents are getting out of hand at sporting events, and he wants to protect game officials. Lindbergh schools in St. Louis County have a program designed to turn students into leaders. And we'll get started with Maurice Ashley, made history as the first African-American grandmaster in chess. Now he's encouraging schools and parents to introduce the game in underserved areas. He spoke to Ashley Bird at the St. Louis Chess Club during the prestigious American Cup tournament. I'm just a fan. I'm just an Uber fan right now, <laughs> loving the loving the event. As a grandmaster and a, a member of the U.S. Chess Hall of Fame, how easy is it to sit by and watch these tournaments? Very easy. <laughs> I love it. I love sitting back, <laughs> watching, trash talking, not having to suffer for hours at a chessboard, trying to figure out the best move and then make a mistake and blow the entire game. Like, yeah, <laughs> I did enough of that in my career. It, but it's fun. These players are so good. They're so incredible. They, they come up with fantastic ideas, and the drama is amazing, especially when it gets down to the wire and the, you have no time on the clock and you see them moving much faster, uh, trying to not lose on time. Uh, that's very exciting. I note that you are the first black person to be grandmaster in the U.S. and worldwide. Chess is played all around the world. It is played in over 200 countries. The Chess Federation, International Chess Federation, boasts 199 different member nations. And that's just the ones who have signed up to be a part of it. So it's a game that everybody can play and everybody should play. And we're excited that it's booming right now with all this attention that has come to chess, particularly after the Netflix series, The Queen's Gambit. Chess is diverse and played all over the world, yet you're still reaching out to historically black colleges and universities. Where are we falling short? Well, there is underrepresentation in the African-American community uh, here in the U.S. I think the funny thing is, if you go to the younger generation, I'm talking about very young, elementary school, middle school age, you find a lot of kids, African-American kids playing chess. There are a lot of great programs out there in St. Louis, uh, in Atlanta, in New York, in Chicago, uh, in, in Houston, in LA. But at some point, kids feel like if you're smart, especially chess is a great game, but what's, what's the payoff? What, if, should I go to college? Shouldn't I pick up another profession? And, so we want to see continuity that they don't quit in droves or leave the game behind and maybe pick up something else by making chess more lucrative. And we're seeing that those opportunities come now. And we don't want to lose out on those opportunities because you have tournaments like the American Cup in St. Louis giving $300,000 prizes. And it's only one of the many tournaments that take place at the St. Louis Chess Club where so many millions of dollars go out, have gone out for chess professionals. The chess tour is a $2 million tour every year. You see the professionals playing in 
their jobs in chess, whether it be as a coach or as an arbiter. Uh, I've written books and made money that way. It's just the opportunities are there, and we want to make sure that everyone is able to take advantage of those opportunities. And as a coach, uh, what do you what what's some of the encouragement you give to your students other than the money as well? Well, I haven't coached, you know, because of all the things that I do, I haven't coached in a while. But when I coach national championship teams, the biggest catch for them was the fact that they could travel. I used to get <laughs> kids excited to play chess by saying, hey, we're going to go to tournaments all around the country. We'd go travel to Dearborn, Michigan. We'd go. I took kids to London to play chess and meet world champions. Uh, it certainly is uh, a game that gives better access. You can travel. You can meet amazing people who play the game. And you have all these benefits that come from the game. And now I have grown adults who I used to coach who are, are now in banking, uh, those in, in medicine, uh, art, film, who come back and say, to be, you know those chess skills I learned back in the day that you taught me? I'm using them to be successful in my business. And that's the secret that people don't realize, that those skills are transferable. And one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you today is that you mentioned that you really do want to reach out to uh, more kids, especially in underserved areas. Now, it's it's not about race, is it? It's about opportunity. It truly is about access and opportunity. And those kids who are not able of any race to not able to participate in the game, which, by the way, is so inexpensive. You just need a chess set to start. But the reality is there is some barrier to access uh, in terms of getting a chess coach, being able to pay for a professional to teach you. Uh, you've got to have the equipment in terms of a, a laptop with working Wi-Fi and broadband access so you can get online and play. The database programs do cost a little bit of money for you to train on. And then I mentioned travel, to be able to go around the country and play chess in these big events. That costs dollars. So we want to flatten uh, the access, uh, the access points, being able to give it to more and more kids so that they can play. A lot of it will take place online. A lot of kids do have access to to online events. And the more we could do that, as long as online training as well as some great websites, then more and more kids from any background can get involved. So one of the challenges here in Missouri has been uh, access to broadband, and we have a mixture of, of urban and a lot of rural areas. What are some of the other challenges, you, uh, as you mentioned, you know, having a chessboard, but what are some of the underserved areas that we really need to hone in on? The truth is, I think the biggest challenge are the adults. <laughs> like people who have a certain misconception about chess and not realize just how much fun kids have playing who also are not intimidated because they themselves are intimidated. So they think, Oh, kids are not going to like that because we're all oh, these kids are distracted by their cell phones and the like. That's precisely why they should be learning chess. But because adults come with this, this preconception that chess is a certain way for a certain type of person or certain types of kids, they don't bring the chessboard home, put it in front of the kid when they're four or five years old, when they'll just naturally be curious and want to pick up the game. 
to me, that's really where the biggest barrier is. And if you start showing it to them, have it in their schools, kids will pick it up like they pick everything up quickly. And then you'll see more and more interest and even resources be spent on the game. We're talking to chess grandmaster Maurice Ashley, who's also a member of the U.S. Chess Hall of Fame. And here on Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri, we, we mentioned chess quite a bit because the St. Louis Chess Club, a world-class chess club, is also good about communicating what's happening. One quick question before we talk about the upcoming event in April. What really broke the barriers for you? Were you um, always a chess player? How did you come into it? I was not always a chess player, but I was always competitive. And I come from a competitive family. My oldest brother, uh, Devon, he was a three-time world champion kickboxer. And the baby of the family, my youngest sister, Alicia, she is a three-time world champion boxer. So I didn't want to get hit in the face. But when a friend of mine beat me at chess in high school when I was 14 years old, I didn't take it lying down. I happened to see a chess book in the library, and the rest is history. One of the events uh, that you would like to talk about, obviously, is what's happening with the HBCU-focused tournament. Tell me about that. The first ever HBCU chess classic will feature some of the great universities that we know are part of the historically black colleges and universities, including Howard, Hampton, Morehouse, Spelman, Clark, FAMU, and others who are trying to scramble right now to get their teams in place for the April 22nd event in Atlanta. We're very excited about this because we know there are 107 HBCUs around the country and we want to build chess in each one of them as this vision for chess uh, in the HBCU community begins to grow. Chess Grandmaster Maurice Ashley, thank you for joining us today on Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Thanks for having me. And one final thing, uschesschamps.com if you want to learn more. Show me the day. I see you finally got a new helmet. I did. Bought it cheap online. (laughs) (laughs) Follow me. We'll turn off here. I'm right behind you. Watch the cars. They can be crazy. Teddy! No! Are you okay? Somebody do something! Was this young man hit by a car? Yes, and his helmet is smashed. It's a brand new helmet. It's probably a fake. Fakes cause real harm. You're smart. Buy smart. Brought to you by the National Crime Prevention Council and the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. I drive my bus in a busy city. That's why road safety is so important to me. I know that I must slow down and be extra careful when I make a wide turn. Buses need more room than cars. Everyone can help keep our roads safe. Next time you're driving, remember to give buses plenty of time and space to finish turning before driving ahead. Let's all plan to share the road safely. Learn how at www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. I've been driving trucks for a long time. Safety is my number one priority. I know that my truck has huge blind spots. That's why I remember to check my mirrors often for smaller vehicles. Everyone can help keep our roads safe. Next time you're behind the wheel, try to avoid lingering in those blind spots. It can be dangerous. Let's all plan to share the road safely. Learn how at www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. 
The first three years of every child's life are critical. Learn more about early intervention. How your baby or toddler plays, learns, talks, acts, and moves give important clues as to how they are developing. If you have any questions or concerns about whether your baby or toddler's development is on track, please call 1-800-515-BABY. That's 1-800-515-2229. Call 1-800-515-BABY. That's 1-800-515-2229. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Bill Pollack, and we're going to talk about Piney River Brewing. Uh, Two brewers, a husband and wife, a big old barn, and a river located just down the hill. This sounds like a Chris Farley uh, skit here for a moment. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Um, It could be. (laughs) (laughs) Joining us is Jolene Durham, the uh, owner of uh, Piney River Brewing. And uh, you just celebrated your 12th uh, aleversary. Is that how you say it? Your aleversary? Aleversary. Aleversary. Yeah, yes. aleversary. Okay. Aleversary, yes. Basically, our 12th anniversary uh, of the brewery uh, opening to the public. Wow. All right. So uh, give, let's go back 12 years then. How did it all get started? Well, in um, the summer of 2010, uh, Brian, my husband, and I had we had a barn on our farm that um, we had decided that we were going to turn it into a brewery. We were uh, active home brewers, and at the time, there were not a lot of craft breweries in Missouri or even really in the United States. And we thought that it would be so cool to have beer that was made in the Ozarks, about the Ozarks. We began renovating um, a barn built in the 1940s on our farm as the place that we were going to brew the beer. There was a loft upstairs in the barn um, that we thought we would turn into a tap room so that people could come, you know, visit the brewery, see where the beer is made. That has blossomed into um, a great um, opportunity for us to uh, you know, get to know lots of new people as they uh, enjoy craft beer in the Ozarks uh, and come visit us at our brewery. Jolene Durham with Piney River Brewing. Uh, yeah, Where are you guys located? What town are you in? So we're in a very small town, a really uh, a postal code more than anything called Bucyrus. We're, that is in south central Missouri. We are about 10 miles um, west of Houston. Um, so, you know, we're, we're located on our farm. We have about 160 acres of farmland that we raise beef cattle on. And, uh, 
so we're two miles down a gravel road, kind of out in the middle of nowhere, but it's definitely a destination place to visit. Yeah. All right. So when you first started, uh, you said not a lot of craft breweries, but now uh, that that scene has exploded. So what sets Piney River Brewing apart from most others? Well, so, you know, I think one of the things that makes our beer extremely unique is the fact that we brew on our farm and we utilize well water, which in the Ozarks, we have wonderful supplies of delicious, um, you know, water that is filtered with limestone through our karst topography and so, you know, um, we don't have to do any type of treating to our water because, you know, it's got like chlorine or other types of things in it from some type of treatment facility. We just, you know, pull it directly out of the ground and brew our beer. And we think that it makes really great beer. And in the uh, 13 years that we've been in operation, we also have, you know, we've won several awards for our beer. We, we've won a couple of World Beer Cups. A Great American Beer Festival Award. Um, we've won several awards at the U.S. Open Beer Championships. So we're really proud that we make some of the most award-winning beer in Missouri right on our farm in the Ozarks. Yeah, when you go to your website, PineyRiverBrewing.com, and you look at the awards, it's uh, a bunch of gold, uh, silver, a little bit of bronze in there, best microbrewery for a couple of years. Yeah, you have racked up the awards. You have nine beers that you uh, produce year-round, and then you have uh, 13 of them that uh, you bring out throughout the year at different times of the season. Is that right? Yes, I would say that 13 number is prob- probably varies. It's probably actually more than that because, you know, one of the things about being a small brewery is um, you want to try new things. So we do that. Um, we'll make small batches of things that may only be available in our tap room. Um, we also have, you know, seasonal beers that we release. Um, we might release one one year, and then you may not see it for a couple more years. You know, so um, the we do have a, a solid lineup of year-round beers that we have all the time that are available in our tap room and that you can find you know, at a lot of retail locations around the state, but uh, we also do a lot of experimenting as well. Jolene Durham from Piney River Brewing down in the Ozarks. Um, yeah, I mean, you've got IPAs, uh, ambers, uh, pale, I mean, you name it, a seltzer. I mean, you, you kind of have dipped into all of it, uh, different variations throughout, yes. the, throughout the years. Yes. Uh, one of our, our, our probably our what you would call our flagship beer or the beer that we are most known for is our black walnut ale. So it is a dark wheat beer that's brewed with Missouri black walnuts that come from Hammonds in Stockton. And, you know, Missouri is known for being a state where a lot of the black walnuts that are um, consumed in the U.S. come from Missouri, and uh, of course they're processed by Hammonds, which is located in Stockton. And uh, we feel like the Black Walnut beer really highlights, you know, who we are as a brewery because it's using a wild and hand harvested nut that the Ozarks is known for. It's great that you're using all the local stuff too, Jolene. Uh, you uh, do everything in cans as opposed to bottles. Talk about that because that's unique too. Yes. Well, um, for back you guys, when there's... we first, 
when we first started the brewery, um, we were thinking about packaging. Um, now, at the time, bottles were pr- the predominant way that most beer and a lot of beverages were packaged. And we, being in the Ozarks, where the Ozark National Scenic Riverways, the Mark Twain National Forest, et cetera, are located, you know, we were like, man, it would be really awesome if there was a way we could get our beer into cans so that, you know, you could take it out on the Ozark National Scenic Riverways. You know, cans are lighter and uh, less prone to breakage if you want to take one, you know, hiking or on a horseback ride. Um, so at the time, the craft beer world was beginning to grow, and there was a, a small company out of Boulder, Colorado, that was working on a canning machine for smaller brewers. And we actually were one of the first uh, breweries to buy one of those machines from them. And we were actually the first brewery that was a microbrewery in the state of Missouri to can beer at our brewery. And, you know, I would say most breweries now, they, uh, they go into cans. They don't even think about doing bottles just because cans are so much more recyclable. Um, they're also a better way to preserve the beer because they don't allow any light or oxygen to get into the beer. Um, and we've had great success as a canning brewery and, you know, certainly uh, don't have any regrets for going that route. Plus, you know, it's a great way to be able to enjoy a beer out in nature. Yeah, and Jolene, I don't know if anybody uh, collects or keeps cans, but you've got really cool cans, and, and some of these, uh, especially the limited release names, are pretty cool. The Farm Buzz, uh, the Sinkhole. Uh, I'm just looking at these. The Masked Bandit IPA. Uh, it's a raccoon with a, right. with a mask. I'm sure that was uh, COVID themed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's really that's really good stuff, and uh, some exciting news too. You're uh, starting to work with uh, some distributors and and getting your beer uh, in St. Louis. Yes, so we have been distributed across uh, most of the state for a, a long time, pretty much since we started our brewery, because we really felt like you know we're a farm brewery, we're out in the middle of nowhere, it's not easy to get to us. So we need to find ways to get our beer out to bars, restaurants, uh, stores in in missouri so uh you know we've we've begun doing that uh over the years and uh just last month in march we launched our beer in the st louis market which uh we're very pleased to do that with craft republic and we feel like that is going to um you know give us the opportunity to get more beer into the hands of pretty much the largest beer drinking market in the state in the st louis metropolitan area Jolene Durham from Piney River Brewery. Many people know about a bed and breakfast, but you offer a bed and brewery <laughs> experience, which sounds much better to me. Okay, so um, a couple of years ago, we purchased um, a, an additional farm that is located um, on the same road as our brewery. We took the time uh, during the COVID pandemic to uh, gut the house and remodel it to use it as what we call a bed and brewery, which you're right, there aren't a lot of those around there. Uh, we don't do breakfast, but we will stock the, the fridge with beer before you arrive. We've really tried to turn it into a place where, uh, you know, you can come and have the full Piney River experience of staying in our farmhouse, um, enjoying the fire pit, sitting on this 
porch swing in the morning, just enjoying the outdoors and, and nature around the farmhouse, and then being in close proximity to the brewery. So you can come to the brewery, um, maybe have a pizza and drink some beer, listen to some live music, get a brewery tour, um, all of those things uh for a fun weekend getaway in the Ozarks. Well, crack open a Piney River and uh, give them a try. PineyRiverBrewing.com is their website. Jolene Durham, uh, congratulations on the 12-year anniversary and uh, many, many more. Thank you so much. We greatly appreciate it. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Meet Ed, movie buff, animal lover, safe driver. Five years of driving an ambulance teaches you a thing or two. If people knew what I know, lives could be saved. When I see a car trying to rush past a turning bus, I get concerned. You see, when big vehicles turn right, they have to swing wide to make the turn. And that's a lesson you don't want to learn the hard way. When trucks and buses turn, let's you and I wait. It's It's our roads. It's It's our safety. Visit www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. If you're talking, they will hear you. Why are we getting killed like this? Kyle's not here. Got caught drinking beer in the park a couple of nights ago. Really? Yeah. Zero tolerance. He's out for the season. Harsh. Hey, he knew not to drink. We've made that clear to all of our kids, right? Uh, no, not really. Bill, if we don't tell them what we expect and why they shouldn't drink, how are they going to know? Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. You try. All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Hi, it's Tori DeVito. In every family, small conversations can make a big impact. Like when my dad shared his experiences as an alcoholic. Your honesty about that part of your life gave me a sense of integrity that I wanted to uphold in my own life. I wanted you to know from someone who's been in recovery more than 30 years now that hard work is what creates success, not alcohol or other drugs. I said it a lot, and I'm glad you took it to heart. Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for kids, teens, or young adults. It's just not. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals and volatile organic compounds into your body. And nicotine, the same highly addictive substance found in regular cigarettes. Nicotine can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. Affecting learning, memory, attention, and impulse control, and priming the brain for other addictions. Vaping products also come in kid-friendly flavors that can make them appealing to youth. And many kids also use other drugs, like marijuana, in vaping devices. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping, because when you talk, they hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Email from school about the incident today. Scary. Tell me about it. Did you have any idea that was going on? None. I mean, you saw Derek at the game last night, too. Did you have a clue? 
No, but you know, teachers like me, parents, we don't always know as much as you guys do. Kids hear first about what's going on with other kids. Half the time, it's rumors. It can be hard to tell sometimes, but if you have a concern about a friend who's having trouble with alcohol, prescription drugs, bullying, violence, anything, you need to tell an adult. Mom or me, a teacher, coach, school counselor, someone you know and trust. Dad, no kid is gonna tell an adult about that kind of stuff. I get it, but if we don't know, we can't help. Speaking up about a problem, that's what helping a friend is all about. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. We're back on Show Me Today. Uh, referees, umpires, officials in sporting events, they make bad calls or they miss calls. I mean, it happens. It's part of the game. Anytime there's human element, there's going to be calls that don't go the way that you want for your team. But nasty fans and parents are getting out of hand at events. And Democratic Representative Jerome Barnes has seen it firsthand. And he wants to put protections in place for officials at sporting events. I tell you, I started back referee and probably when I was in my mid thirties I was you know my son I had a son and I was looking to get involved with with the uh, uh, sports and uh, I got myself certified and so I've been refereeing ever since except for the last seven years since I've been down here I only refereed a little little AAU stuff or stuff that didn't associate it with the state uh, because they told me it could be a conflict and so uh yeah, it's been, it has changed uh, tremendously since then. Uh, I have two sons uh, that's into the sport refereeing, and my youngest son, I started him out at 15 or 16. Uh, he had his first gang, and he came home that day and said, Dad, I don't want to do this anymore. And I said, what's happening? He said, man, they was, they was pretty rough on me, wanted to follow me to my car, to yell at me, and 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 did a whole lot of bad things and so but then from that point forward I went to his games and now he's still doing it so he's he's about uh he's turning 25 years old in May and I think he's been refereeing now for about 10 years so it has changed a whole lot I mean back then it was like a joke or something that you know I remember going up to uh, a place up there in uh I think it was Polo it's been so long ago but uh you know, the guy, he was the sheriff, and he says, uh, you boys about to make sure Polo wins tonight if you want to get out of here. And that kind of stuff back then, you could take it as, you know, it's a good joke. We all laughed about it and went out on the field and had a good good time and good gang and came on back. But if folks say that to you today, it raises eyebrows because they mean it. And if you look at the news lately, people have been seriously hurt, killed, uh, over sports, over these uh, gangs, referees, ro- over refereeing, you know, and most of these referees are not, they are not professionals. They they go to work during the day just like anybody else. They get off in the evening and go referee games to support the sport uh, so the kids have somewhere to go to display their talent. They're just trying to do uh, their job. Just trying to do their job. Uh, but those guys now are getting out of the sport because it's just not worth it. Right there in Raytown, where I represent back in 20, 
2017, maybe 2016. These dates are just they're running on with one another. But anyway, it was about halftime of a girls gang and a JV gang, and one of the uh, brothers out of the stand just came out of the stand and cold cocked the referee, uh, sent him to the hospital. Those type of things just uncalled for. There are uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of what 22, 23 other states have some type of laws trying to protect the referees. Over the last few years, uh, I think back in uh, uh, 2017, uh, before the pandemic, uh, we had some somewhere in the neighborhood of, uh, uh, I had a list that had somewhere in the neighborhood of 8,300 referees back in 2012. And in 2019, 2020, we only had 73. So we had lost uh, a thousand of them then. And we continue to lose referees uh, every season. And that's because uh, they just, you know, the only place that you go to work and get yelled at, you know, cursed at, threatened, it's sort of like if you have to enforce rule, you're going to draw attention to yourself. So let's talk a little bit. You, you had mentioned in your previous answer about enforcement. What sort of enforcement and sort of punishments would be proposed under this bill? So right now, uh, if you know, if you get a simple assault on a referee, it's uh, you know, it's a slap on the wrist. You get, uh, uh, for example, that court, that case that happened there in Raytown, it went to the city court. Uh, in the city court, they can only do certain things. If it goes, if it had went to the uh, county, it would have been able to do a little bit more. But we asking that uh, instead of it being uh, less than a class A, uh, that it be moved up to a, a fourth degree assault, which would consist of a class A misdemeanor. That's what we asking that it be moved to. A, uh, right now, it'd be a class C misdemeanor, and we just asking that for you and a special victim category, it would be a class eight misdemeanor. Yeah, see, right now, it, a fourth class degree would be a class C misdemeanor. But if you're in a special victim category, it would be a class A misdemeanor. A follow-up of this, if I may, and in, in regards to this topic, you've been proposing this for a couple of years now, and a couple of times it's passed over into the Senate. What has prevented this from being signed into law, you think? Sometimes there's a lot of bills just die once you get to the Senate. Uh, one year they was uh, filibusting and and didn't make it. You know, uh, there's many reasons why it just sometimes it just die and don't make it. Any sort of opposition that you've heard about the bill? Well, uh, I haven't. You know, really, the little taste of opposition that I did hear. Uh, it was maybe uh, they believed that the, uh, uh, you know, most people don't like referees and, and they they just feel that, you know, they're not trained properly or they don't have the stats to be in the same category as the firefighters, the, refer uh, the police and, and uh, uh, people like that. But uh, what they really don't understand is anytime you have to enforce rules in the public, which they do have to enforce rules in the public, it draws uh, a lot of attention. And basically, uh, a referee, he or she, is just part of the community. Uh, that was over in Kansas, a young lady that was, I think, 17 years old, but 
had a police officer captain that was coaching his basketball team, and he went out, and I think he pushed the referee because he got so angry with her, went out and pushed her, and they sell it for some type of uh, disciplinary for him. But it's, I don't know, it's just it's just something about referee. You know when you when you have a dog and a cat come down the street, that just it's just that friction uh, goes out when a referee puts on the uniform and get out on the court or get out on the field. There's just something about the referee that brings out the ugliness of some people. Let's say for the sake of conversation, this does not mm-hmm. pass. So the question mm-hmm. becomes, what would be a path forward to kind of bridge this gap and provide more protections for referees in both the collegiate and uh, professional sports here in Missouri? Well, we've been dealing with this in the past. Uh, this Missouri, Missouri State High School Athletic Association, they have implemented certain rules uh, that uh, uh, fans get banned from stadiums, uh, you know, and uh, uh, they're more training for referees on how to handle more conflict, more training for uh, administrators on how to handle conflict. Uh, they won't, you know, try to see things before uh, it happens, you know, if, if somebody out there uh, yelling, uh, you know, derogatory things at the referee, then approach that person early before it get out of hand. Um, and basically, we're not, you know, really trying to put people in jail. What we really want is the uh, uh, administrator of, the, of a game to announce before the game that there's a new law out there that says if you attack, assault an official, Here's the rule, boom, 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 to warn people to, you know, lay off the referees. I mean, hey, as a referee, I love a good referee. These your glasses? You missed you missed a call or something. No, this your phone? You missed a, it looked like you missed a bunch of calls or something. You know, that kind of stuff is humor. But when a person tells you, look, I'll be waiting outside for you. That's a threat. You know, those type of things is not needed in the sports arena. In 2017, 2018, I think 17,000 referees uh, took participated in this survey, and they, and they determined that the first three years of a new referees uh, uh, into the sport, they quit because they don't, they don't want to take the harassment or the uh, – the, the extracurricular stuff that they had to put up with to do the game. And that's what's happened with us. The average age for a referee right now is probably in their, in their 50s. And in about, you know, 15, 20 years, you know, we're going to be really short of, of referees. And hopefully uh, if this bill gets passed, and, you know, uh, uh, we could uh, uh, start announcing that there's a new law out there to try to help protect the referees, that we'll be able to recruit and get new referees into this field. It's called House Bill 108, State Representative Jerome Barnes. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Mom and Dad used to argue about everything, especially about Dad's drinking. My family went from totally crazy to quiet, calm, and even peaceful when Mom started going to Al-Anon family groups. I wanted a better relationship with Dad, so I asked Mom if she would take me to her Al-Anon meetings or to Alateen. I'm sure glad I did. If someone's drinking troubling you, you might be surprised at what you can learn in an Al-Anon or Alateen family group from people just like you. Call 1-888-4-AL-ANON or go to alanon.org. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? 
Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. If you're talking, they will hear you. Why are we getting killed like this? Kyle's not here. Got caught drinking beer in the park a couple of nights ago. Really? Yeah. Zero tolerance. He's out for the season. Harsh. Hey, he knew not to drink. We've made that clear to all of our kids, right? Uh, no, not really. Bill, if we don't tell them what we expect and why they shouldn't drink, how are they going to know? Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. This is Show Me Today. Lindbergh Schools in St. Louis County started a program about a decade ago because it saw a need to help students develop their soft skills and leadership abilities. Elisa Nelson talks to Sam Capel, an eighth grader, and Megan Vallis, a librarian at the Lindbergh Schools. And you are with a group called Flyer Time. Tell me what Flyer Time is, Megan. So flyer time is 23 minutes of every school day that students 6th, 7th, and 8th grade are combined into small little family groups that meet with a teacher um, every day and do character lessons, service opportunities, leadership. Um, There's some time for them to work on some soft skills and some like flex time for retakes and tutoring and that kind of thing. How long has this program been around? Uh, over 10 years, um, but as the years have progressed, every year we are kind of reflecting and making changes for the better based on what our students need. And why did you see a need to do something like this? Uh, middle schoolers are in our building for only three short years, so it's hard to have those connections because you only see them for a very short time. So we wanted the students to have the same teacher, one of the same teachers for their three years, have the same group of students with them, that they could learn more soft skills, how to be kind to one another, how to 
provide service to your community, um, leadership opportunities. Um, we had that need at our school. All right, we're going to bring in Sam Kappel here, the eighth grader, big man on campus, um, to talk about flyer time. What's the coolest thing that you have learned in flyer time? Um, well, I think one of the coolest things that I've learned in flyer time is just how to be a better leader and not be as not be a boss, but be a leader. Because I've learned that there's a huge difference. And I, I really enjoy teaching about character. It's really fun. All right. I'm a boss, so tell me, what's the difference between a leader and a boss? Well, a leader and a boss are two very different things because a boss will tell you exactly what you need to do, and a leader will kind of show you the difference between what the right thing is to do and what the wrong thing is to do instead of just telling you exactly what to do. It gives you more of a path uh, a creative path and a strict path. All right, great takeaway from Sam here. Okay, so talk to me about, has there been like a really awesome project or anything that you have done that you, you'd like to talk about? So uh, Truman is one of the middle schools in Limburg District. Sparing is the other middle school. And we did a little segment in the year called Two Schools in One Book. So during flyer time, we uh, read a book, so Truman and Sparing read a book, and then the flyer time teacher would, uh, well, the flyer time student leader would teach about what kind of happened in that chapter and kind of ask questions to the class and what they reflected and took away from that chapter. And uh, we would do that uh, every uh, Monday, I believe, and we, yeah, it would, it would be very fun and it would teach a lot. Okay, I'm going to go back to Megan and ask Megan, tell me something about Sam, that you've noticed a difference in Sam since he's been in the program. Okay, so Sam is in a special flyer time because he... Why is it special? He's a flight crew leader, which is a student leadership group that goes and teaches the flyer times. So I get to be his teacher of that class, so I have lots of special things about Sam. But Sam was in my, they can be flight crew leaders starting in seventh grade, so I've had Sam from seventh and eighth grade. And seeing him mature and um, become a leader amongst his peers has been great. And I think in the middle school level, even more powerful for um, boys to be in that leadership position because a lot of times in middle school, the girls are the ones that are stepping up to lead the class. But Sam is not afraid of leading his classmates, has done it for two years, prepares his lessons, and teaches his peers character things. You talked a little bit about, you know, some of the uh, female students being leaders, some of the, the male students being leaders. Talk about what you think about this program in terms of what you've noticed, some of the biggest takeaways that you've noticed with the students that have gone through over the years? I think in middle school, most middle schoolers are really trying to find themselves, figure out who they really are, and there's not always the leadership opportunities because they can also be very impulsive. Um, but I think at our school, we have about 46 flight crew leaders, and those kids apply to be a part of the program, but the leadership skills that they develop and just become uh, true leaders um, is 
so powerful to their peers because they're not just leaders when they're going into flyer time. They're leaders all day long and they kind of like live that knowing that they are a leader amongst their peers no matter what class they're sitting in. Um, so I think that gives them a lot of power and they also meet with our principals and um, have like council meetings to kind of talk about school changes, what's going well, what needs to be revamped. So our leaders respect them. Um, I think that's the greatest part about them as the leaders. Megan Vallis with um, Lindbergh, High, uh, Lindbergh Middle School, also Sam Kappel, an eighth grader at Lindbergh Schools in St. Louis County, joining Show Me Today. I'm Elisa Nelson. We're at the Missouri School Boards Association Day at the Capitol. So how many um, students do you currently have in the program? And, and did you say, do they have to like apply to get in? Yeah, so currently this year, there's only seventh and eighth graders. Sixth graders get the first year just to take in middle school. And this year we have 46 student leaders in our school. And our school has about a little over 700 students. Um, and that has grown significantly uh, just two years ago we only had about 20 so we've almost doubled in our student leaders they do have to apply they answer a couple of questions about what they think a leader is they have to get parent permission and um, teachers have to give permission that they too can miss um, opportunities because they don't have as much flex time as the rest of the students because during the flex time days they are planning the lessons for the other kids of flyer time. Is this flyer time, is it unique to Lindbergh or do other schools in Missouri have something like this? Do you know? I don't know for sure. I don't think necessarily the time is unique. I think a lot of middle schools have what's called like a homeroom where kids work on flex time, but I do think that it's unique that we have lead student leaders that are teaching their peers. Um, and I think it's also unique that we have our character lessons kind of intermixed with our time that students are learning skills about how to organize themselves, how to be on top of what tasks needs to be complete. So I think that is different at our district, um, but I think a lot of area middle schools have a homeroom time. All right, this is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Show me today.